Chapter Twenty Five of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Twenty Five. The company assembled in his mother's home greeted Basine with excitement. He had stopped over during a tour in behalf of the Liberty Loan. Mrs. Basine had persuaded him to attend a function in his honor. He was late. They were waiting dinner for him. When he entered, a sense of great affairs, of world disturbances, came into the room with him. At the table the talk centered around him. He was the superior patriot. Questions were fired at him. When would the war end? What was the real secret of this and that? and did he know what was behind the latest note from the president, and when was the German offensive due? He answered ambiguously, offering no information and exciting his audience by his reticence. Aubrey Gilchrist, who had held the floor before the senator's arrival, listened eagerly to his brother-in-law. Aubrey's patriotism was a bond between them, but it was of a different quality. Aubrey's patriotism was founded on the fact that America was the most virtuous nation in the world. He devoted himself to a campaign among his friends, and had even spoken publicly a number of times. In his talk he grew eloquent over the moral grandeur of his country, and hailed the altruism and honesty of his countrymen as a light that illumined the world. Aubrey had overcome his impulse to publish his father's manuscript under his own name. His fears had finally triumphed. He had utilized his decision in a curious way. For months after determining not to commit the imposture, he had discussed the decision among his friends. "'I worked a number of years on it,' he explained simply. "'But on reading it over, I feel that it's not the thing to be given the public.' It's a bit too Rabelaisian and unrestrained. Among gentlemen, yes. But when one thinks of young men and women reading such things, one hesitates. I feel, too, that I can do better. Perhaps in another year or so I'll finish something more worthy. This explanation had given him a pleasurable emotion. It had coincided with the inner Aubrey, the Isaiah who thundered in secret. He had gone about elated with the knowledge of his honesty, not only the honesty of refraining from the imposture, but the honesty of sparing the public a work likely to undermine its morals. With the advent of the war, Aubrey's elation had expanded miraculously. The nation became a collection of Aubrey Gilchrists. He found an outlet for his self-admiration in boasting tirelessly of the virtues of his countrymen. His interest in the Germans was faint. He was chiefly concerned with having the moral grandeur of his nation recognized and triumphant. Seated opposite him was Fanny. She smiled when he looked at her. The war had brought Fanny happiness. It had released her from the tormenting of Ramsay. She turned occasionally toward Ramsay, a few seats removed at the table, and spoke to him. He had changed. He sat flushed and elated, 
and took his turn at denouncing the enemy, at avowing vengeance and prophesying terrible victories over the Hun. His anger rivaled Basine's. The curious game he had played with Fanny had lost its interest. He had emerged like Basine. Fanny was no longer necessary to his desire for a sense of power, a power which convinced him of his manliness and concealed from him the secret of his inferiority. He had transferred his game from Fanny to the Germans. He was now tormenting the Germans. The news of their defeats, the hope of their annihilation, inflated him. In addition, his belligerent air, his glory threats, enabled him to establish himself in his eyes, and in the eyes of others, as a thorough man. There were others in the company. Judge Smith, red-faced and glowering. Aubrey's mother engaged in excommunicating the Germans as socially unfit and outside the pale of her sympathy or support. A number of prominent social and political lights. They discussed the war with animation, fired questions at the senator, and ate heartily. Dishes clattered. Servants appeared and disappeared. Mrs. Basine, sitting beside her son, listened to him proudly and grew sad. Her son's prestige pleased her, but the war saddened her. She noticed that Mrs. Gilchrist was growing old, too old to share the enthusiasms of the day. Yet there was a comradeship in the room that stirred Mrs. Basine. She disliked most of the individuals around her, but when they came together there was something charming in the way they talked and smiled and exchanged confidences. Mrs. Basine had secretly allied herself with a pacifist group of women who labeled their minor timidity as intellectualism and argued with violence against the major timidity identified as patriotism. She had a horror of war, her imagination seeing herself continually suffering with the soldiers of both sides. A similar sensitiveness had converted her into a vague socialist. The misery of what she called the masses was a mirror in which she saw a possible image of herself. She subscribed with enthusiasm to doctrines which promised to establish justice and tranquility in the world. But now, among the people in her home, Mrs. Basine noticed an enviable optimism. Some of them were old friends, others new friends, but all of them were alike in one way. All of them seemed wonderfully excited over the fact that this war was going to put an end to all wars. She would have liked to share this optimism, but her intelligence deprived her of the solace. Yet she was able to feel kindly toward the ideals she sensed were false. They were somehow like her own ideals, inspired by similar things. The camaraderie in the room heightened. This was a war that was going to put an end to all wars, and everyone felt happy. They talked and laughed. Their manner seemed to hint that the war was not only going to put an end to all wars, but to all troubles. Yes, the Germans vanquished, victory achieved, and the world would be beautifully straightened out. 
they identified themselves avidly with the world, these new and old friends. The enemy who had dogged their monotonous little footsteps through the years, the veiled nemesis who had harassed them and filled them with helpless, futile hatreds, tripped them up and robbed them at every turn, this enemy was at last unmasked. He was identified now. He was their troubles, their defeats. And they had him out in the open now, where they could shout battle cries and leap upon him. He was the Germans. Mrs. Bazine, groping for an understanding of the elation among her guests, and desiring to share it, thought of her grandchildren. She remembered George when he was no older than his son. This memory seemed to give the lie to the excitement in the room. She wondered why. She remembered Fanny when she was a girl. And Henrietta long ago. Henrietta was smiling quietly at her husband, a faded matron, scrawny, silent. And Doris was upstairs, weeping perhaps. She had taken Doris out of the sanitarium to care for her at home. The doctor said melancholia. She might be cured if something could be found to interest her. But there was nothing. She sat wide-eyed and morose through the day, her hands listless and waited till night came and sleep. Her skin was yellow, and there were little glints in her eyes, as if they were peering out of the dark. Senator Bazine laughed at the sally of a pretty woman. The table joined his laughter. The senator was an inspiration. His manner was forceful, his words direct. When he listened, his head remained flung back. When he talked, he lowered his head and raised his eyes. There was an anger in him that awed. It played behind his words. "'You're right, George,' Aubrey answered a remark Basine had made. "'I agree with you entirely. But, after all, the purposes of this war are more than victory over an enemy. The victory over ourselves.' Aubrey's words were lost in the racket of rising diners. The eating was over. The guests filed into the library. Henrietta slipped her hand through her husband's arm. She remembered vaguely the afternoon in the Bazine library when George Bazine had asked her to marry him. No, it was in the kitchen. She would have liked to talk about it. But this was no time to mention such things. She sat down and listened to the excited remarks of the guests. There was an interruption. Aubrey, at the window, raised his voice. "'Look here!' he exclaimed. "'Soldiers!' The company crowded to the front of the room. Men in civilian clothes, carrying small bundles over their shoulders, were marching four abreast down the center of the street. "'Entertaining for war, by God!' said Ramsey. They watched in silence soldiers going to war. There was something incongruous about that. A vague feeling of surprise and discomfort held the watchers. Men who would in a short while be lying in trenches, shooting with guns, killing other men. And they felt curiously out of touch with the marchers, 
as if the enemy they had been denouncing at the table and vilifying throughout their day were someone not so far away as france as if these marching men in the street were being sent to the wrong address end of chapter twenty five recording by roger moline